reason I offend or fail to uh, impress. Um, I am an elder here, and I am very honored to be standing in front of you this morning in hopes that we can finish out the book of James together. Mike is away, spreading the good hope and cheer of FQ Cubed at other churches, I believe, at a youth retreat this weekend. Uh, and it's a fantastic opportunity whenever we get a chance to send our ours out and let people see how we do things and how we think. So, if you could grab your Bibles now and go ahead and open to the book of James, chapter 5, verse 13, we're going to finish it out. And we're going to go ahead and read through the passage first, so you've got it kind of marinating as I go forth and talk about different things. And I want to give a fantastic shout out to Zach for being so gracious in that introduction and setting a level of expectation I may not be able to live up to. <clears throat> All right, so does everybody have it open? Okay. Starting with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faithful will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man, purchase, person, excuse me, has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone amongst you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And that is where James chooses to end his epistle. Okay, so, like much of James, these verses can be taken to face value. You read it, you get it. James is nothing if not direct and blunt. Um, however, Often we get that perspective because we're comparing him to some of the other books we have, namely Paul's letters, okay? And Paul, well, just when you read James, again, it seems very straightforward. And then Paul has this wonderful, beautiful diplomatic rhetoric that structures an argument. And then uh, you, you go to the Gospels and you have this dense richness and subtext, even other New Testament books, uh, like, for example, the Gospel of Mark, that seem fairly straightforward, can be very complex for us as modern readers because everything in them is assumed and implied by the author that we get the frame of reference that they're speaking to. I'll give you a great example. Um, Larry 
classic is a 74-year-old gentleman that I work with in the chamber, and he is our photographer for our events. And we've bought him a fantastic digital camera, and he goes out and he stages people for the photos, and he usually takes two or three just to make sure he got a good one. And what he will do is he'll pose the camera, and he'll take it and say, okay, guys, okay, hold on, one more, one more, and he'll do this cranking motion on the side of the camera. And anyone who's under the age of 35 who's in that photo looks at me like, is he having a seizure? What's going on? What, what on earth is he doing? They don't get the frame of reference. Why? Because they don't know of a day when we had cameras where you had to advance the film with a little hand crank. Everything's digital now. It's a frame of reference issue. So when we read James or Mark or any of these books, um, we, we have to recall that they're writing for a specific audience in a specific time period, and that may not have been us. But God is speaking to us through those words, and they all apply. So we have to do both. James can be very deceptive, precisely because he is so blunt. His writing is so direct, it's easy for us to take the lazy route and absorb it only at face value. Why bother to tear James apart? especially when you've got this huge specter of Romans and Revelations just kind of looming in the background that demands analysis and in-depth thought over almost every word. Uh, James doesn't really demand that. James just puts it on the table. But if we do that, if we take that only at the table, only is what's laid out, only what's on the surface, we risk losing his intent. And there's a level of his message that can be lost. So, I'm not going to suggest that anybody in this room has been reading James wrong, because you haven't been. Uh, and the other fantastic thing about James is the surface message is a good one. It really is. But my goal this morning is I'm going to present another way to interpret some of these verses. Um... In fact, I have three goals. I want to give you these verses the way James may have written them, not the way that we read them. Does that make sense? Yeah? The, what his intentions, where he was, what he's conveying, not necessarily what we have been receiving in a modern-day reading. Second, I want to find a way for these verses to apply to us today as readers in the modern context. And third, since we are ending the book, from a fantastic sermon series over this book of James with profound wisdom from Mike and from Zach McKeska before, I want to revisit some themes and kind of put a nice big ribbon and tie a big bow on the whole book and sermon series and leave you guys with a good sense of feeling of this epistle before we move on. Okay, so those are my goals. Now, I am not going to separate into three sections, so don't wonder, don't, don't take your notes, don't divide into one, two, and three. I'm just going to shuffle it all together in hopes that we just kind of bleed through and get those goals as we go. So, oh, another point to note is, is I may say things that have already been covered, that Zach or Mike has already mentioned. That's intentional. That's intentional, because this is the end of the book. And just like most conclusions, revisit the main points. I'm going to try to leave you guys with some main points, even if they've already been touched upon before. So let's dive into it. What did James write that we may not be hearing? Well, let's start by reminding ourselves who James is. Okay? 
Now, depending on who you ask or who you read, there can be as few as two people in the New Testament named James and as many as seven. And we don't know. We just don't know. Um, It's very confusing who's who. Paul or the book of Acts, for example, which would be Luke writing, they'll just say James and just kind of throw it out there. And we don't, we don't know if that's, that's a previously mentioned James or this James over there or a whole new James. We haven't even heard of him back because they are assuming that you know as the reader which James they're referring to out of context. Um, or we'll have sources that will say things like James the Lesser, James the Just, James the Apostle. So is that three different guys named James or is that one guy named James with three different names? We don't know, but we've got some good ideas and some good thoughts. Let me give you a couple quick examples, though, about how that may translate into modern times. In elementary school and middle school, I was known as Jacob. That's my given name. That's my first name. That's the name my mom screams at me even to this day when I'm in trouble. Jacob is my name, right? Of course, when I go off to college, we're going to start over and redefine ourselves. So then I went by Jake, and that name has followed me ever since. But in high school... And there were two guys named Jake. So I was Big Jake, just by virtue of being tall. Now, I'm Big Jake for other reasons, but we're not going to go there. Um, so that's, that's three or four different names just for me in my lifetime. Then, I want you guys to remember that back then, there were no last names. Now think about how many people have gone to this church recently whose names are Chris, and you understand the problem. Who are we talking about? Well... Mike, when he started this series, he presented James, the brother of Jesus, as the author of this epistle. And I completely agree with that. I completely support that. And so do most of the people that I choose to read. Okay? So we don't need to talk about all those other Jameses. That's our guy. James, the brother of Jesus. Now, I can tell you a lot of things about him. There's books written about him. We're not going to go too deep. But I do want to give you some fast bullet points, some things I want you guys to remember as I continue this morning, and also as you walk away and reflect on James as a whole. All right, so first of all, James was the first bishop of Jerusalem, and he was the head of the church. A common misconception is it was Peter, because of the whole rock thing, the whole cornerstone situation, and also, really, it's kind of Peter who starts the church. He has a moment in Acts where he's the guy who kind of keeps the movement alive, gets it going. Uh, and he certainly deserves credit for that, and I am not trying to diminish Peter at all, who is a fantastic figure of our history. But James, the brother of Jesus, was basically the first pope before there were popes. He was, he was the guy in charge from an organizational and spiritual perspective in those first couple of decades of the church. Okay. Second, he's killed in 62 A.D., by stoning, which, for those of you who are not familiar, means they hauled him out in a courtyard and they threw rocks at him until he stopped twitching. He was ordered to be killed by stoning by the same council of Jewish leaders that years earlier had sent Christ to Pilate and thus to the cross. And it's the same council of Jewish leaders who a few years later are going to try to condemn Paul as well in the same way. But Paul's going to invoke his Roman citizenship and instead go to jail. 
But uh, there was still some contention. That Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, was still very active for quite a while. And that led directly to the death here of James. Not to be confused with another James who gets his head chopped off a few decades earlier. So, but he dies 62 AD. Um, he also has the first Christian church built. And he was this leader. What do I mean by that? He's the first guy to make a building and say, this building is for the worship of Christ. And it was in Jerusalem, and it's considered the mother church of Christendom, and we have no idea where it is, so you can't go visit. Uh, You can probably visit a few places with speculation, but it happened. He built it. He was the first guy, and he was its leader until his death. So that is who James is. Now, the last thing I want to impress upon you is what his main focus was. James's main focus was Jews who were living a Jewish lifestyle and had accepted Christ as the Messiah. It's not that he didn't care about Gentiles or he didn't care about other things, but that's where his focus was. That's who he's speaking to. So when he talks in the epistle, when he talks in the book of Acts, when he takes action, that's really what he's concerned with. And which is fine, because it turns out later we have Paul, who's going to handle just about everybody else in the world. Um, but that's his focus. And we need to look at what he says through that lens. I'm going to help you do that this morning. Um, who is James writing this letter to? Seems pretty simple, right? First century Jews. I just kind of went through that. Um, and also first century Jews who may not live in Jerusalem. James never really leaves Jerusalem. He basically sets up his shop, plants down in his church, and he's there until they decide to take rocks to him. Um, Now, one of my favorite things about the study of this particular book, okay, is the people, and there's always people who are going to say, no, they didn't write that. No, it was something else. No, it was cobbled together later. Well, the main argument why people would say that James did not, in fact, write this letter is that he was written in Greek, and the grammar's okay. They don't believe that James, who would have been lower middle class at best in Jerusalem, would have had the education to be able to do that. And the reason why I find this so amusing is almost in the same breath, they turn immediately right around and they complain about how poorly written this letter is. Oh, there's no way he could have written it. It's in Greek. The grammar is pretty good. But man, this thing was written horribly. I don't know what this guy thought he was doing. Come on, guys. Make up your mind, right? Is, is, is it well written or is it not? I think it's well-written. I just think it's written from a perspective and with a tone we're not used to. Simple as that. And I also think it was written by James. Um, For quite some time, people thought that this book was an attempt at a kind of Christian version of Proverbs. So James has cool ideas and cool thoughts, right? Oh, you shouldn't do this. You should do this. This is how we should behave. And he just wrote these snippets down and just kind of compiled them all together into his letter and sent it out into the world. Ah, here's a little, my little nuggets of wisdom for you to absorb later. And we have books in the Old Testament. Sirach is like that. Uh, uh, Proverbs, of course. Uh, I don't agree with that. The main reason why they feel that way is because it doesn't look, again, like Paul's letters, which is extremely structured. Paul wrote in the MLA format of his day. It was nice. It was formal. 
Everybody knew what was going on. You can compare it to other letters of the day. You know what's happening there. But remember, here's something we forget, especially if we're trying to compare the two. Paul is mostly writing to specific churches. He's writing to specific churches and often churches he's never visited before and never been to who don't know him, except by reputation at best. Second, uh, he's often responding to specific requests or actions. Most of Paul's letters is not the first letter in the series. We're getting, we're, we're getting letter two or three in the middle after they've already had an exchange or after that church has reached out and hoped and asked for knowledge from Paul. So he writes with that in mind. He also knows and hopes and intends that his letters are going to be read aloud to the believers. And he writes that way, which is why another reason why it is so structured and why he uses that diplomatic rhetoric to build such sound structures of words. Um, To put this in modern time, today, Paul is basically writing letters to the editor. He's sending something in an envelope in hopes that Texas Monthly is going to publish what he's got to say. Or, for those of you who don't recognize Texas Monthly anymore, um, he is writing an open letter that he's going to put on Facebook in hopes that it goes viral and everybody sees it. Dear Mr. President, an open letter from, you know, here's all my grievances or all my praise. I hope this is shared a million thousand times all over the world because I'm not really writing it to the president. I'm writing it to everybody at large. Okay. Well, if that's what Paul's doing, James is writing a company memo. This is the email from the CEO of Shell that goes out to all Shell employees on Friday afternoon. Uh, It's him basically touching base. Here's the things I want to correct you on, things I want you to know about. Uh, Go get them, guys. Rah-rah team. Hope you come back into the office on Monday and look at this email again so you can start your week with all of the company culture already under your belt. That's what James is doing here. It's a different style of writing that's naturally going to have a different tone and structure. Because he's writing to people who know him. He's writing to people who are already kind of on the same page as him. And he is merely trying to get the word out about specific things that he feels the need to let us know that we need to do differently. So if you take all of that and can accept that, then you have to accept that James has a cohesive structure. And that there are themes that run from the beginning and the end. And he's got a purpose. And that's the purpose that he starts the book with. And that's the purpose he ends the book with. And if we accept that, then we need to look at most of these verses and everything that he says, all his little snippets of wisdom, as how they are puzzle pieces into his central message. And I'll catch that at the end. Okay, so let's just dive into the verses in the passage. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Well, first of all, this is continuing an established theme that James has of taking everything back to God. Taking everything back to God. Um, We're going to look at the second half first. I'm going to revisit the suffering piece later. So let's just put that aside, and we'll come back to that this morning. Um, So, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Sing praise is an expression of joy. It's a joyful thing. 
It was then, it is today. Okay? James does not say mutter a dirge. Is anyone cheerful? Let's have a rendition of uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It's not what he's saying. No. Joyful. Sing a hymn of praise. Give us a psalm. I want you to think about Aretha Franklin, surrounded by just a wall of people in robes who could not both sing and stand still if their life depended on it. I'm talking a joyful singing. That is what James wants when we're cheerful. Now, why would he tell us this? Well, one of the themes, excuse me, themes that James hits, and he hits hard, and he hits it over and over again, is you cannot be selfish. You cannot be selfish in your faith. You cannot be selfish in your money. You cannot be selfish in your time. You cannot be a Christian and be consumed only with you. What if this line is not telling us to give credit to God for every random good mood we have? Well, I woke up chipper this morning. Thank you, Lord. Obviously, that was your hand at work. Probably was. And I'm not saying he's saying otherwise, but what I'm saying is his point is something different. I think his point is a call to not be selfish with our joy, but to share it with the Lord. I think this is a call to make him part of our cheerful mood, to include God when we feel happy. All right, moving on to the next verse. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right. There's two things going on here I want you guys to consider this morning. The first one is that Judaism, especially at this time, was obsessed with ritual purity. Absolutely obsessed with it. And there was a good-sized list of things that could make you impure. And if you became impure, you could not worship. You couldn't go to the festivals. You could not sing hymns. You could not partake of ritual food and drink. You could not talk to your religious leader. The priest didn't want to be anywhere near you. It's the equivalent of just basically not being able to come to church, not being able to talk to Mike, not being able to talk to the elders. You basically have to sit at home by your lonesome until you get it right, and the responsibility of becoming clean, becoming pure again, is on you. That is your job. No one is supposed to help you with that. Cleanse yourself. That is what Judaism at the time of the first century, that's what they had. It's what they saw. Now, there's usually also a waiting period before you could even be considered again. And that was part of the cleansing process. For example, if you had the unclean event, the horrible tainting occurrence of having a daughter born instead of a son. And this goes for the family, you know, you got dad and you got mom and mom's about ready to pop. And then over the weekend, she does. And all the women come in, everybody has the brouhaha and dad freaks out a little bit. And then everybody leaves and you're left with this wonderful new child, but it's missing some important parts. This is a little girl. Guess what? You and your wife or your wife and your husband 
you are considered unclean for 80 days. Just for the offense of having a girl instead of a boy. 80 days, you are unclean. Well, another thing that made you impure was if you had any kind of bodily fluids going on. And if you are a mom, you know that this is a constant thing you get to deal with. Bodily fluids from everywhere. Um, you got a runny nose, open sores. Basically, if you're sick, you're impure. Taking that information... And if you apply it to the first century Judaic Christians, what that means is, is if you got ill, you couldn't take communion. You couldn't come to church. You weren't even supposed to pray unless it was a prayer of trying to purify yourself. Well, James disagrees with that. He didn't want that at all. James turns that whole concept upside down on its head. It is not your responsibility to make yourself pure if you're sick. It is your church leader's responsibility. You shouldn't avoid church if you're ill. Church is a place you should be. You shouldn't be denied communion. You have never needed it more. This is what James is saying. You see, we read James, and certain passages stand out because they make us uncomfortable. Right? There's a whole work and faith, faith and works thing going on. There's a whole witch issue, all of which has already been covered by other people before me. But what we miss is that first century Jews, every other sentence through this entire letter was like a bomb being thrown at their mind. That uncomfort, uncomfort we feel about reading those passages about being rich, where my kind of kind of, kind of go up here kind of pointed out to all of us, that's most everybody in the room in some way, shape, or fashion. Yeah, they were feeling that discomfort cranked up to 10 on almost every sentence in his whole letter. And we miss that. We lose that. if We don't stop and take that in and think about it. Um, the other thing, the second thing that we, I want you to consider about this passage is something else that we might miss reading it with modern eyes. And once I call your attention to it, it's going to be pretty obvious, but you'll see why we miss it. Here's the thing. In first century A.D., if you were sick, you're probably going to die. You're probably going to die. Take the flu, okay? I hate the flu. You all hate the flu. Nobody loves the flu. It's a horrible thing to experience. And, you know, me, I'm going to be all manly about it. I got the flu, I'm sniffling, everything like that. I'm going to pour some soup in a thermos. I'm going to go to work. That's what you do when you're a man in America. Until I get the fever, and then I turn into a mewling child. And I basically go home, I crawl under my comforter, and I drive my wife insane. Because, you see, my throat is so parched, I'm so thirsty, but the cup's over there, and I have to reach my hand out of the comforter to get it. Valerie, save me. Yeah, that always goes over so well for me. Um, <clears throat> the flu's a horrible experience for us now, but back then it was probably a death sentence. It was probably a death sentence. I'll give you another example. All right, I ate at this one little Chinese food place that was just off campus about once a week for five years, a half a decade, and I got sick 
from that place probably about four times a year consistently. Every time I ate there, it was like uh, food poisoning roulette every single time. But man, you don't understand. The General Joe's was so good. It was so good. It was worth the risk. And often it was like, oh, okay, I got sick last month. I'm good. I'm good for another couple months. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm probably still got the antibody or something like that. It's all good. Yeah, I probably would not have taken that risk if I lived in Antioch during the reign of Emperor Augustus. And first time somebody gets sick eating the local falafel shop, we're going to torch it to the ground. Illness was not the same thing as it is today, because we have wonderful miracles of modern medicine that they did not have. With that in mind, please understand that James here probably does not mean for this to be a cure. This is not about the elders coming and removing your sickness. I think it can. I believe that it does. I think that James thought it could also. But that's not what he's talking about here. James is talking about last rites. James is talking about preparing you for death. In fact, this is the passage that both the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church use in support of their doctrine of last rites, which they consider the anointing of the sick a sacrament. And it's on par with communion and baptism for them. This is a big deal, serious thing. Because this is your chance to finally make right with God. Be spiritually cleansed before you die. Be anointed. And to quote James, and then the Lord will raise you up. Okay? This is also the opportunity to kind of clean the slate one final time when you're probably not likely to be able to rack up any more sins. You know, when you're stuck in bed, shaking and shivering and waiting for that final moment, chances are you're not probably going to be able to add to your tally of wrongdoings, so that's a good moment to wipe the slate clean. He continues, though, on with, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay. Every Bible here in the church and the Bible that we preach from, whoever is up here, is usually the ESV version. And it's a fantastic translation, and it's not my translation of choice. Um, So I want to give you a different translation for this last sentence from just a different version. Uh, which I feel is more impactful. Instead of the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, consider the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. I prefer that because it's clearer. And it highlights something. And I'll tell you what that is. It tells us that if we are righteous, and every one of you can be, Every person in this room has an open invitation from God at every moment of their life to be a righteous man or a righteous woman. So any of you are or can be righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Your prayer is always powerful. It always is effective. Now, it may not be effective in the way you intend. You may not understand the power it is enforcing. You may not get your desired result, is what I'm saying. 
But what James is letting us know is that our prayers are always effective. They always put us in communication with the Lord. And to whom in this passage does he instruct us to confess our sins? Only to God? Go lock ourselves in the closet, turn the lights off, put a pillowcase over our heads so no one can see us, talk to God and confess? Maybe just to church leadership, right? Only those special, privileged, chosen. No, 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 that is not what James is saying. James tells us we need to confess our sins to each other. To each other. What this passage means is that a quiet conversation with a Christian friend that we trust, when we open up in our burden our sins, a moment over coffee, an evening over a beer, during a commercial break between the big game, everybody clears the room and you find yourself alone with your buddy. Those moments when you're vulnerable, those moments when you choose to open up and unburden your sins and make that connection with your friend who is a Christian, that is just as important, that is just as valid in the eyes of James as going into a little booth and closing the curtain and speaking through the wire mesh. That is what James is saying here. And the sad thing is that many of us, not all of us here in the room, today, but many of us come from Protestant backgrounds. I do, for example. And almost all of us come from an American culture of independence. We don't do any form of confession of our sins at all. That's showing weakness. If that sounds like you, find the time. Find the person. And it's quite really easy James helps you find that. Who, who, who should that person be? He makes it very clear. That person should be the one who is going to pray for you. Not the one who's going to judge you. Maybe not the one you're comfortable with. The one who is going to hear your confession and pray on your behalf. All right, so then we get into Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right, you can find this story in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's a fantastic story. I love it because uh, I'm a fan of stories just in general. So I encourage everybody to look it up if you want to. And if you haven't read it in a while, go back and revisit it. it it's actually an entertaining read. It really is. Um, you know, growing up and attending Sunday school, I, I heard all about Samson. And I heard all about Noah. And you hear all about Moses. And you hear about David, usually David and Goliath. But sometimes the king stuff that happens later. I heard all about those wonderful characters. Didn't hear much about Elijah at all. And then later, I mean, hopefully we all get to a point where we actually read the Bible, and then you stumble across all the stuff that hasn't been taught or shown to you. And I'm like, wow, this guy's fantastic. He does so many things. This is, he's like the superhero. Why did they leave him out? Why didn't we hear about him? Something of a rabbit trail, but I've got a theory, a personal theory. Because, um, you know, he is, he's on par with Moses and David as far as importance in Judaism. Uh, my theory is this. I think that Christians are uncomfortable with Elijah and his protege, Elisha, 
because they perform very similar miracles to the ones that Christ performs. They perform, they do things that are very similar to what Jesus does in the Gospels. And you know what? Jesus doesn't do any miracle just about, just about, that isn't done by somebody else in the Old Testament. Here's the difference. Jesus does them all. And when they're done in the Old Testament, the individual is not the person performing the action. Their only action is saying, hey God, can you turn my stick into a snake? It'd be really cool if we could walk through the Red Sea right now. Jesus simply acts. So there's a distinction there. But in particular, I think what we find ourselves most uncomfortable with, with Elijah and Elisha, if you're coming from Protestant Christianity, is they're the ones that raise the dead. They raise the dead, bring them back to life. And we want it there to be absolutely no confusion that it is Christ who has defeated death. No one else. So that's my two-bit theory on why we don't hear about them very much. Um, but what James is doing here is he's reminding them that the most powerful, not the most important, but the most powerful figure in their history was still just a regular Joe who's appealing to God. He's simply asking, and God is delivering. Okay, before we go any further, I want to go back now to verse 13, to the piece that I skipped. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. This is not repetition. James covers illness and dying in the next verse, and we already kind of discussed that. No, the suffering James is talking about here is not physical pain and discomfort. James is talking about grief, guilt, depression, fear. The suffering he is mentioning here is mental. It's emotional. It is not the agony of the body. It is the agony of the soul. In fact, all the translations, King James and such, use the word afflicted because it's more closely aligned with the Greek that suggests this, this emotional turmoil. Okay. It is important to realize from a spiritual perspective that this kind of suffering is just as crippling, just as debilitating as any kind of physical illness. That when we are lost in depression or guilt or grief, that can impair us even more so than having lost a limb or the ability to breathe unaided. Now, the Bible addresses suffering so many times in so many places. Uh, it, it's all over the place. In fact, we did a sermon series over the book of Lamentation, which is basically just one big ode to, Lord, I feel horrible. Um, it's covered. We get it. We got it. We got it from a lot of different places. But I challenge you, I f challenge you to reach out and find a location in the Bible that addresses suffering, even the words of Jesus in the Gospels, as simply and as directly 
and as powerfully as James does with these two little sentences. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Now notice that James assumes that we aren't going to know who's suffering. He assumes that as I stand before you here today and repeat his words, that I have no clue which among you need to hear these words. Why? Why does he phrase it that way? Is any among you suffering? I'll tell you why. Because this kind of suffering is its most insidious and its most damaging when it is hidden. And when we hide those things and we bottle them up and we refuse to allow our brothers and our sisters and our family to even know that we are in spiritual agony, it is far more destructive in that moment. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and try to tell you about these things without giving you at least a little bit of a confession. I've suffered this way. Not nearly as much as some. But I can tell you that I'm still carrying guilt that I should have let go of long ago, and I know it. And somehow I'm still just worrying at it like an old soup bone over and over. I'll confess that. I get black moods. I know what it's like to know that I'm not happy and not be able to remember what happy feels like. To be so lost in the depths of my own mind that I don't even recall what normal is. Except I know that it's not this. I've been there. And as I bring that to your attention, please notice also that James does not promise us comfort. All he says is let him pray. He doesn't say praying is going to make you feel better. He doesn't say praying is going to make, fix your suffering. I think it will. I think it can. I think James thinks so too. But that's not the reason, again, why James is saying this here. James, once again, does not want us to be selfish in our suffering. He does not want us to bear this alone. He wants us to take an action, praying, that forces us to accept that we are loved by our God, even if we can't feel it. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Continuing on that theme, still talking about these two fantastic little sentences, James has another theme that is paramount through his whole letter, and that is the fear of turning away from God. He is concerned for us that those of us who have found the Lord will lose him. Now, I'm not talking about leaving him. Leaving him is an intentional decision. I am leaving this party. Goodbye, and off you go. You have made a decision, and you are taking action. No, I'm talking about losing the Lord. You ever lose your car keys? Lose your phone? Everybody's done it. Everybody's done it. Here's the thing. You don't know it's gone. You don't know when you lost it until you need it. And it's not there. That's when you recognize, whoa, I don't have my car keys. I have someplace to be five minutes ago. I am in a hurry. 
my tie is not on straight. I have no idea what my hair looks like. One shoe is untied, and this is when I realize I have lost my keys? Yes, that is when, every single time. It's not going to be on a casual Saturday morning when you have all the time in the world. Think about that in a spiritual context. In fact, I bet everyone in here has lost something currently, right now, sitting in this room. You've got something that is lost and you have no clue. You don't know what it is, but I promise you, you've lost something. James does not want us to lose the Lord. We are in an enormous amount of danger of doing so when we are suffering in this way. Pray. If you'll forgive me a, uh, a metaphor. So I drive, to, I drive to Louisiana several times a year. I've got family there. We get together as a big family, brouhaha, and everything like that. So what that means is I have to drive this stretch of I-20 that is pretty much a fantastically wooded piece of desolation. It is nothing for miles but trees, trees, and two lanes. And if you're lucky, every half an hour, another car. That's all it is. So picture that, because I've made that drive at night. Two-lane highway. Solid trees. Pine forest on either side. And it gets dark. The sky is overcast. There's no stars. There's no moon couple hours into that and you realize that the only source of light is your headlights. The only way that you even know that there are trees on either side is because you have seen them in the daylight and you remember. Suffering, truly soul-deep emotional ache of suffering, can be like driving that stretch of road in that night. And if you do not pray, you are turning off your headlights Turn off your headlights. Now, the headlights, having them on, they may not make your journey any shorter. You may not get there any quicker. may not even be any easier. But what it does is it keeps you on the road. It enables you to see where you are going and what is safe so that you can get out of your trial. And if we don't pray, if we turn those headlights off, we have no idea if we're on the road at all or when we leave it. And we'll never see the tree that gets us. If you are suffering, pray. Which brings us to our final verse. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, point. You cannot wander from the truth if you were never at the truth to begin with at some point. What does that mean? He's not talking about reaching out to those who have never, never found the word, never seen God, never experienced that. No, no. He's talking about those who have been with the Lord and who have left. The surface answer here is that no one is so far gone that they cannot be brought back to the Lord. And that's valid, and that's true, and I hope we all internalize that. 
But I don't think, again, that that is James's main point here. I think what James is saying is that if you have found the Lord and lost him, it is extremely difficult to find him again alone. That finding him the second time is so much harder than that initial discovery. What James wants us to know is it is our responsibility to lead the lost back to Christ, to not make them do that alone. Now, I think there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. You can't bully someone back to God. You can't force them. You shouldn't try to bribe them or trick them. But we have to try. It's not an easy thing. And we may not succeed. Picture, picture the guy at the airport with, you know, the, with the cones on the flashlights, the landing guy. Well, come on, we've all seen it. Yeah? Can't miss that guy, right? It's this way. It's over here. You can ignore him. You can keep on walking. But he needs to make sure that everybody sees the way back to that road. That is what we are called to do. That is what James is Minding us is our responsibility as a church and as Christians. <coughs> we have to try because it is cruel to abandon anyone outside of the covenant. In conclusion, real quick, I want to wrap up by pointing out that James opens his epistle focusing on Personal, you, your morality, your ethics. How can you be a better Christian? What is expected of you? But he slowly lets that build into us. What is the community responsibility? How are you supposed to interact in a way that supports a community? I think that is key. I think that's why he hits selfishness so hard. I think that's why he ends on this passage, that we have the responsibility to retrieve the lost. Is because that community is needed to be in communion with God. So we've got lots of things at the church. You heard some announcements already. We've got home groups. We've got women's retreats. We've got a man's retreat. We do stuff all the time here. If you choose to go to those, and I hope that you do, please take the moment to remind yourself that you're not just going so that you know everybody's name when you come in on Sunday morning, so that you kind of feel a little bit more accepted or a little bit more comfortable. It's not just about you know, being included in that conversation about the Texans or what's going on. It's about performing the expectation that God has of you to seek him out in community. 